Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Today I'm speaking with Chris Callister. Chris is a Los Angeles-based filmmaker focused primarily on editing documentaries. In 2018, he finished the Netflix original documentary, Seeing All Red, which premiered in competition at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Also in 2018, Chris was editor and second unit director for the feature-length Holocaust documentary, Who Will Write Our History, and served as an editor on the Netflix original documentary series, Evil Genius. He has written and directed multiple music and concert videos for one of the most popular rock bands in the world, The Killers. Chris has previously edited for The History Channel, Universal Sports Network, and The Sundance Institute. And he received his master's degree in film production from USC in 2007. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So it's quite the story of how we know each other that my sister is friends with um, your daughters and they met in high school. Uh, and so I think like my first going right, right to how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) not intentionally, (laughs) but I think like one of the first memories that I can remember of us talking, it must've been a time when you came over for dinner and I realized that you were related to the lead singer of of Imagine Dragons, which is like <laughs> one of the craziest things. So why don't you tell me a little bit about like your background and where you grew up and uh, and who you're related to and how all of that panned out, I guess. <laughs> sure. So um, yeah, it's funny because there's actually a couple weird connections here where I grew up in Tennessee, as you did. Mm-hmm. You, you grew up in Memphis, right? Like that. Yeah, I grew up in, yeah. in Memphis. Yep. I grew up just outside of Nashville, and then um, my, I would say a Mormon family, except for my immediate family, sort of stopped going to church when I was around, like, middle school kind of time. There's just an interesting Mormon connection. Yeah, one of my cousins is the singer Dan of Imagine Dragons, and then another of my cousins is the manager for the band The Killers. And then the other weird Mormon connection there is that my favorite book growing up was Ender's Game, right? written by Orson Scott Card. And so then it, it, in the same way, you you had kind of a weird like, oh, you're related to that guy. I kind of just like, wait a minute, you were involved in that movie that was like my favorite book growing up? Like, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. Kind, of, kind of a funny thing there. That's true. I, I forgot about that, right? Orson Scott Card is a Mormon and, and that and a lot of my friends who knew about that book in high school were Mormon. I, you know, I... I I knew that connection, but I'm, re- I'm re-remembering it now. That's interesting. I wonder, you know, it's a question I've been meaning to kind of ask you because I knew, I know a little bit about the high school you, you went to because I know my daughters went there and I know they didn't have a particularly big Indian population. No. I, you know, I wonder, I'd always kind of wondered if there was something in sort of like the Mormon experience, like, you know, me growing up s- semi-identifying as Mormon and semi having then sort of like a feeling a little bit like an, a cultural outsider, if there was something about that, that made, that made the story of Inner's Game appeal to me a little bit more or in the, you know, or just mm. the Orson Scott card had experienced something that that story was interesting and kind of, you know, whatever. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, without getting too far into it, I feel like Orson Scott Card is a whole can of worms because there's, I a, know. there's, <laughs> there's a lot about him that's extremely controversial too. But something that we talked about when we were shooting that movie is just taking the text of the book for what it is and in, in the same way, you know, our director who also wrote the script, Gavin Hood, you know, we just really took the script the way it was and the way that script was and the way that the book came to me it was just a relatively diverse group of people um, who came from a lot of different places. I mean, essentially you've got, you know, all of these various kids coming from around the world to be part of battle school, like, and are, they're learning how to fight against a, a race of aliens, essentially. And to me, the book represented not only like a true diversity um, in the kinds of people and the, the kids that were coming up, um, but a, a coming of age story, a science fiction story, and um, an important lesson about war and about childhood and about losing innocence that I think connects to everybody. And I think everyone experiences um, some of the emotional beats in that story. But that's interesting that you felt a little bit like an outsider in terms of your family's religion, which is something that interests me a little bit. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? I'm just interested to hear more about how that has connected. Because when I look at the work that, that you do now, it's you know, incredibly political. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if that is connected to your upbringing or if that's just, you know, sheer happenstance. Hmm. That's a good question. I, I don't know that I've ever tried to connect those two things in my head. Um, I, I, I guess what I could say is I did feel a little, I remember just sort of like touchstone memories maybe from high school or so. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just sort of like, people ask you like, what church do you go to or what religion do you go to? And, and I had the, a default answer, which was the one that we had been going to ever when I was young, which was the Mormon church. And all my family was, was very much that way. I have, I have my own memories. Like I have a memory of, there was like a, a CD store that was <laughs> in right behind the church we went to. And so okay. some, sometimes I would, we would all go to church and I would sneak out and I would just go like look at CDs and movies and stuff like that and then sneak mm. back into sneak back in one church. So I, I don't remember having like a strong, you know, commitment or affinity to that specific church, but it was just the, the only way to answer that question, you know, at that age, like what, what religion are you? And I'd say, Oh, I'm Mormon. Um, and that was, mm -hmm. it was just an unknown to people. And so, um, or they had really strange, you know, um, preconceptions of what that was that didn't necessarily line up with my experience or what I knew, but, you know, people still think it's, you know, a polygamous church and yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, you right. know, you're a little embarrassed about it maybe um, to maybe make the connection you're trying to make there. I would say it, it, what was interesting, too, was that because I knew I wasn't super committed in my sort of extended family, I also felt a little bit like an outsider. Like they would talk about it and I knew it was much more important and meaningful to them. And they were, you know, committed to it as a faith in a way that I definitely was not. So perhaps the connection there was just that it made me, then as a culture, you're just able to experience it a little bit more as a, an observer and maybe be a little more critical of everything that's going on around you. And so I think it probably was in a, in a broad sense, sort of a primer for, I was in my twenties that like, I even became interested in politics, but you know, I think to, to get a grasp on it was 
difficult in the sense of kind of saying like, hey, what's going on with society and what's going on with culture and how do I believe? And I, and I, I just felt like it, it made me help me sort of stand back and kind of look at a, a bigger picture and then try to say like, hey, what do I believe here? So you had a very musical family. Um, and I was just wondering if you would, you know, tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up with, with so much music around and um, then eventually how, you know, that took you to, you know, you came to USC. So how did you end up making that transition? So I guess that's two questions, but. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's interesting how that I have relationships with people that sort of like made it big in the music industry. And it's interesting. It's not even just on that side, the side where, you know, one is a singer and a super successful rock band. And then one, one of the brothers manages that band and another brother manages the killers. Anyway, I, it's weird because the experience growing up was kind of like, I felt like we were just a normal, you know, just people that picked up guitars and we were all kids that just liked playing music. And, right. and so there was a lot of like, um, impromptu jam sessions among siblings and cousins and things like that. And, um, yeah, so I, I, so the one big success story is my cousin Dan, who went on to be Imagine Dragons. He's a cool story for me. My my perspective of him growing up was how music was something that the cousins would share. You, I would say like, hey, I wrote this song, and they would say, oh, we wrote this song, and you would share each other's music. He was an interesting thing in the sense that he has, I think it's it's either seven or eight older brothers. I think it's seven, and then he has a younger one and a younger sister, but... They were all really bright, successful doctors and lawyers and dentists. And he was the one that um, he wasn't getting the grades that most of his older brothers, were, older brothers were. In particular, the one right in front of him was like this like superstar academic. And that pressure on him just kind of made him, I think, you know, he got to college and the thing he loved to do and he was in a band and they started having kind of local success. And so... I have a strong memory of him at that moment kind of coming out to LA and telling me, Hey, I think I'm going to drop out of school and just do music for like a year. And I was really nervous for him. <laughs> I, was right. like, I was like, are you going to, cause it felt like if, if he failed, it was going to be even harder on him, you know, to kind of like live up to what he thought he was supposed to be living up to. So I was sort of skeptical and I, I feel bad. I almost feel like I owe him an apology these days, kind of being like, like, dude, you did it. Like, awesome. Great job. You know? Yeah. But the lesson for me was kind of like, Hey, be brave, you know, like nurture that in your life. And if you find something you really love, stick to it. Absolutely. And I think too, or I guess for, for other professions, there's a more linear way of like getting to success, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And I talk about this with my dad all the time because he's a doctor. And, you know, it's pretty clear. Like, you get good grades in undergrad, you know, go on a pre-med track or you, like, take the prerequisites. You go to medical school, you do well there. You go to residency, you do well there. And, like, you're a doctor at the end of it. But I think that what happens is people assume that the arts has no process. They, mm -hmm. they assume that, like, okay, like, you just get discovered and, like, that's how it happens and... They don't have a real sense of the kind of work that people are putting in, the kind of the kind of entrepreneurial work people are doing, even if they don't go to school, to sort of set themselves up on the path to success. And it's definitely more nebulous than another kind of like professional uh, occupation. But at the same time, like there is a way to do it. And, you know, there are some ways to really not find success. And there are definitely some ways that if you put yourself in the right positions from a filmmaking perspective, if you're if you're acting in a lot of 
indie films or you're able to find things that are non-union and you get yourself a reel, mm-hmm. you can get yourself an agent, your mm-hmm. agent will put you out on other gigs and then you can like you can work your way up through that and I just think it's a pre it's a, a this preconceived notion people have of the arts that like oh you just kind of get lucky or you know somebody and at least in the United States I feel like for any of these whether it be music or acting or dance there is still some process there there's a path that people have followed and you can follow in their footsteps you know I think that's an excellent point and and also just to kind of say that almost any success story if you look at it just in the immediate timeline of when it happened it looks like a luck story but it's all you know it's like just before that there's probably this an incredible amount of work and body of work that's created that never gets seen by whoever you know it's funny because I, I was just thinking about this because my someone who I met in an acting class, one of my friends, um, Geraldine Vishwanathan, she like has blown up. So she's an actress who most recently she's in this film, The Broken Hearts Gallery with Philippa Sue, and it's like this comedy and she's the star of it. But she was in a bunch of things. She did uh, Bad Education, which is this movie with and she was starring oh, yeah. alongside Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. And I was like, this is while she was in Blockers uh, with John Cena, and then she was in Miracle, Miracle Workers, which was this TBS show with Daniel Radcliffe. So she really like blew up, blew up. And it's funny because when I look at sort of the, the press that she gets, you know, wherever it is, they talk about her growing up in Australia, and you know she did um, acting classes and, and maybe some theater work there, and then came out to LA and ended up in Blockers. And they kind of skip over the the like year that I knew her, which was when she was in LA, you know, mm-hmm. like taking an, an acting class with me, you know, just trying to figure it out. She went back to Australia and then this whole thing happened. So they sort of just skipped over this like two year period, you know, in her, in her life. And I remind myself of that all the time when I feel like, oh, you know, maybe I haven't achieved what I wanted to, or there are uh, roles that have like gone by that I wish I could have gotten that I didn't. I have to remind myself that, you know, in two or three years or in five years or in 10 years, um, wherever I am then, that people will, will overlook this moment as if it, it didn't happen and, and they'll pretend like, you know, oh, he just like, he did Ender's Game and then like a couple years later after he went to college, he got this. And it's like, you know, it, it, it just, it's a good thing to remember that like news outlets will selectively choose and they'll, they'll pick pieces of your life and then try to create this narrative that isn't often, you know, the, the way that things really happen. So then tell me a little bit about, about film school. So you, how did you get to USC? I wish I could remember that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I knew I, I, this sounds so stupid, but like, honestly, I just remember, I just remember sort of fantasizing about California when I was a kid and just kind of thinking like, Oh, that just seems like the coolest place to live in L- in the country. In high school, the way I sort of made myself stand out was actually through acting. I did a bunch of plays. And so I had just sort of like good recommendations from um, the theater professor or I don't know what you... Yeah. And yeah, to me, choosing a school was much more about location than almost anything else, you know? And, And I knew that I had, I could get in sort of, theater was sort of my best foot forward. And so... You know, I I looked at Northwestern, and, and then USC was just one, and, and I didn't get into Northwestern, so I I know it made it made going to <laughs> California even that much easier. Um, right. Yeah, I just kind of I don't know. But what was funny was that I feel like 
almost immediately when I got there. I'd never met anybody that worked in film. And, you hmm. know, even though you, you watch the credits, you know there's got to be lots of people that work on movies. I just never met one. And, um, and you kind of only, you only know about the actors and the directors, and they seem like their careers are so, their lives are so far away from yours, it just didn't seem possible. But then I just started to meet people that were like, oh, yeah, I worked on this movie, or, you know, I was a professor that, you know, had a career doing sound on films and it's just things like that, that you're kind of like, Hey, this idea that you, of, you know, one of these, you said one of those lives that, you, you know, the things you kind of looked at and you said like, Oh, maybe I'd like to do that. I'd always thought like, I'd like to make movies. Um, but you meet people and you're like, Oh, I think maybe I could actually do that. And so, yeah, it pretty quickly spiraled into like, Hey, that's what I, but that's what I want to do. So did you end up doing the film program there as an undergrad or you did it as a, a grad student later? Both, actually. You did both. Okay, so you transferred then. Yeah, I did. They have they have like specialties. And so the one I got into an undergrad is generally considered the easier one to get into. It's called critical studies. And that's where you're just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You're... I, apply, I applied to critical studies. It was my second choice major. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I loved it. I mean, that was for me the. I think probably the first class was the first class where a couple of weeks into it, you're writing papers about films, and I just got this sense that I was more interested in in it than anyone else that I was in that class with. You know, not to say that they weren't. It just was like truly fascinating to me. <laughs> you know, and you know this this whole experience that I'd had my whole life of loving movies and going to the movies and going. It was like all of a sudden I had a a language and a tool set to not just kind of like analyze movies going forward in my life, but actually like revisit all these things I loved mm. and think about them in new ways and talk about them in new ways. And yeah, so that was, that was a big moment for me of kind of being like, Hey, not only do I realize I love something, but just having confidence that like there's a path. I, I, I always admire people. You were talking about there's, there's not a set path, you know, uh, for the arts. And I, I agree with that, but I do think that like, you know, going to film school was a very easy landing pad for me to kind of like make the, make that transition. I can say what was odd for me was that I did critical studies undergrad. I did grad school was like production, which was generally regarded the harder one to get into. But when I, when I look back on into it, I definitely feel like critical studies was the more important education for me. It was like the time when I really was able to develop uh, critical thinking skills and apply them to film language. I think that, well, number one, I understand what you're talking about when you say, you know, you like met people who make films and that's kind of like a revelation. Um, it felt the same way for me when I came out as an actor at 13. I just like didn't really know the industry at all. And it's kind of hard to know. And no one in your town really does know and it's very like kind of just like Los Angeles is like a dreamland in which you know everyone's on a red carpet all day long like that's what you kind of get in in Memphis that's the perception of LA and even now still when when I tell people I live in Los Angeles that's their perception of Los Angeles it's like oh wow like do you see Brad Pitt walking down the street <laughs> it's like not really I was lucky enough that I had a teacher a vocal teacher Bob Westbrook who hey like took me by the hand and just said look Basically, just like stand next to me and as we're going through this and as I try to help you get an agent and, and help you get through this, I'll like sort of whisper in your ear and tell you what's going on. 
And that's how, you know, I had a little bit of a, the same thing, like a landing pad. But for a lot of people, I think you're right. It's, it is film school. It's like getting a chance to just be in an environment where there are professors who have actually done this their whole lives and think about this stuff critically. It's very similar with, with jazz or with pop music. The pop music program, I think is a better example because people just sort of, they're like, well, what, why would I need to go to school for pop music? I listen to it all the time. And I feel like you get a similar thing with film school. Like, why would I need to go to film school? I watch movies. Everyone watches movies. But there's a huge difference between watching a movie and having the, the toolkit necessary not only to understand how it's made, but why it's made. Um, why is that important to people? Like, like you said, I mean, critical studies is all about sort of putting film in this context of society and, and the rest of the world and, and how is filmmaking important to humanity and looking at the history of it, et cetera, et cetera. There is like a toolkit that you develop that you don't from just consuming the material without, you know, having that, the next thought of like, oh, I wonder how they do this. Or oh, I wonder why this is so relevant to me and why was this film so important to people? Mm, that's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I just remember in film school having that kind of, moment of like, oh, this is how the sausage is made. Yeah, like everyone has the experience of watching a movie or listening to a pop song and and it it, it capturing them and, you know, having that big emotional moment where it's like the, the part in the song where you're just screaming out loud or the part in the movie where you're you're so excited and you gasp or shout, or, you know, or something like Everyone's had that uh, experience. And then when you see how designed it is and you really tap into like how hours upon hours of weeks and months have maybe gone into just that one moment, you know, like maybe five seconds of a movie or of a song and how incredibly crafted that was. You know, it's weird that on the other end of that, it's like you lose all of that experience. Like, you know, when you've seen something and you've worked on it in, you know, you're on version 100 of something, you know, like it's, it's sickening almost to sit and watch it again, you know, right. like you do, you're not getting that experience out of it that you get for the, for the, that first time. No, no, no. I experienced, I was acting in this comedy and we were doing this scene, I think from like 10 PM to 3 AM one night. And it was like one page. It's just one page of the script. And we're doing this over and over and over again. And you get to the point where you're just like, none of the jokes are funny. What I'm saying isn't funny. And it's not funny to anybody. Like, no one's laughing. You just have to kind of put your trust in your teammates, in, in the cast members, in the crew. We're like, okay, I hope you know what you're looking for. <laughs> because, like, exactly what you said. Like, it, once you get to a certain point, you're like, this is, I'm not experiencing what the audience is going to experience. I have to rely on my craft and my, my toolkit and my ability to do this, to know that it's going to work. When you sort of had that moment of, oh, this is how the sausage is made, did it in some ways feel like a betrayal that you're like, oh, I, as an audience member, I was having this moment and it was so genuine and honest. Does, does it feel like there's also this duplicitous nature of having to like craft these things or did that not occur to you that way? That's an interesting word, betrayal. I kind of feel it with people who listen to pop music who sometimes when I like, I don't know, I feel like I, you know, pull the curtain on hey, by the way, like they spent this time in the studio and these producers are like kind of trying to make this hook so that it's super catchy, that sometimes people feel like, oh, wow, like I didn't realize it was that industrialized. I could, I can certainly see that reaction and, and see the validity in it. And I can certainly, f 
say that like I've I have had moments like that or I've experienced things like that where I feel like you're watching a movie or listening to a song or something like that and you feel a little bit that it was like a a cheap shot at your emotional response, you know, like, like, oh, they got me, but like, that was kind of silly or, you know, like, uh, whatever. But I think actually, I'm glad you isolated that emotion, because I do think that that was probably a really um, critical thing for me and kind of like, finding, like a really primary reason for like, why to do this. And I think for me, it was one, it was recognizing that like, hey, we all are sort of like, without knowing it, endowed with this, uh, this like sense of being able to follow along with other people, like, like a story or, or a song and get, and get emotionally caught up in it. And so I, I definitely wouldn't use the word betrayal, but when you realize like, oh, like I've allowed myself to be led to something or fooled or something, I, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but nobody teaches you how to listen to a song or teaches you how to listen to a uh, or watch a movie and yet everyone can do it and everyone can follow along and have that same thing. And so I, it was really a magical thing of kind of one realizing, Hey, there are people that are really good at this Two, I don't know. It just, it, it all of a sudden created this uh, avenue to understand myself and understand things that were going on inside of me that I was just truly not aware of. It was like, Oh, if, if somebody was able to manipulate me in a certain way, and I didn't realize that, you know, like, what does that say about me? You know, we haven't gotten into editing yet. Editing. Right. Yeah. And, but, uh, you know, what's very common, definitely in documentaries, is that like you're, there's sort of like two phases. There's sort of like somebody's gone out and shot a bunch of stuff. And you know, very broadly speaking, what this movie is going to be about. You know, you know what the topic is. You know who the characters are. You know what happens. But there's still very much like a, much more close to a writing phase where you're trying to figure out what is the story I can tell from these pieces and and also like what are the themes I can pull out of it and and so there's sort of like two general phases to editing a documentary one of them is sort of the discovery phase where you're finding those things and sort of creating the first versions of the puzzle pieces that you're going to use to craft that story and then there's sort of the second part which is much more of a refining and and really um making the ideas that you developed in the discovery phase as strong as possible. But in the discovery phase of it, um, the thing that I've discovered that I love the most about it is that you're having all these conversations with the director, or, you know, if there's a writer or just, you know, whoever's, whoever's watching the cuts or sitting in the room with you as you're, as you're working on things. Um, there's all this conversation that's going back and forth of like, oh, I think that, you know, you know what's interesting to me about that scene or, you know, what's interesting to me, you know, I think this is actually maybe the most thing, um, important, you know, layer of this conversation that we recorded in a scene. And you're kind of having arguments or you're wrestling with the other people to kind of get what you think is most important emphasized in that scene. And what I just love about it is that like at the end of that process, you didn't realize, but like you were really having this incredibly deep conversation with that other person about who you are and who that person is, you know, like there's a subtext to you're working on the movie, but the subtext is, Hey, I think this is most important. They're saying, no, I think this, I think actually this is more important. And when you reflect on it, say at the end of the day, or when the movie's done and you look back on like all the choices that were made, you're like, uh, I fought for that thing because I, you know, 
something in me was saying that was important, or you just have incredible respect for somebody saying, no, this actually was more important. And so I just feel like in that way, a really awesome byproduct of making the movie is that you just get to know the people you're making the movie with really, really well. Filmmaking and music, it reveals so much about who we are. At the same time, there's all this craft that goes into it. And like we were talking about, there's like these, these hundred versions. Um, but I feel like so much of like the ability to have this craft and to like to do it well, the people who are the best at it are the ones who erase all of it too. And then they just give you the piece, whatever it is. Like they find a way to almost make it invisible to the viewer. And I think like to come back to editing, I don't know, I feel like the, the age old like saying about editing is like the best editors are the ones you never see. Can you watch a whole movie and not think about the editing? And then you know that they're a good editor because they've, they've, they've you know, taken you, on the, they've put you on the train and you just never even noticed that they were there. First of all, do you find that accurate? And then I think we have to sort of circle back to how you decided to, to come to editing in the first place. Sure. But. That's probably less interesting, but we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I would say, I mean, a thousand percent, I believe in that. The big epiphany I think I had as, a, as an editor was realizing that like, okay, you have this scene and it's kind of like, you want it to, you know, it's function maybe in this, in this, in the story. And you say this scene, you come to this realization about what this character in the story is going through, or, you know, something's happening and you, and it has like this big, maybe emotional moment. I should probably try to come up with a more tangible example, but I think you probably know what I'm talking about. But the main thing that I'm getting at is that I realized that if you didn't spell it out, that if you just kind of teed people up enough to understand what was going on and then let, say, like a music cue take over that has a certain feeling to it, you just open up space, essentially. So like if I say A, B, and then leave a space, it's like everyone says C next, you know? And so you're, you're, you're constantly playing that game of kind of like, I'll connect two or three of these dots for you. I'm just going to be confident that you're going to go to the, the next dot you know, that I, that I would go to. And I think most people would go to. And when you do that and you kind of leave that space for somebody to make that connection in their own mind, even though you're quite confident that they're going to go exactly where you wanted them to go, they feel like they participated in it, you know? And that's, I think from the audience's perspective, that's that moment where you, you really lose sight of that you've been led along. And it really does feel like you had your own thought there or you, you, projected your own emotion into that space. Yeah, you get something out of it, a, a, a moment that you can reflect on for yourself. Something that I've been thinking about, even just as we were talking, is that documentary f filmmaking and the editing process must be a little different from doing like another kind of a feature film. Because like you were talking about, you have this sort of discovery process first, and sometimes even the director or the person who shot the footage doesn't know what the story really is. Whereas, obviously, if you're doing some kind of scripted thing, you might still discover a lot in the editing room, but you have a general sense of what's going on. Like, I feel like most films, you can read the script and you get the film. But for documentaries, that's, very, that's a very different process. So how, how do you go about working with directors uh, when it comes to this like discovery process and then finding yourself maybe having a totally different film at the end than you thought you would have when you started out? It varies project to project because there are some time, yeah, there are some projects where, you know, particularly if you're, if you're telling a story that is not necessarily happening 
sort of real time, but you're just sort of tell, you know, it's like a documentary about like, for instance, I'm doing one right now about a, a photographer that, you know, he died 10 years ago. And, um, so, you know, what happened in his life and all that stuff is, is very well known. Right. Um, set in stone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, versus one where you're following a subject and you're kind of, you just don't, you really don't know where it's going as, as they're filming it. So both, both of those things can, can be true. Part of what is typical of the process for documentaries is that like you are, you know, you find a subject and then money has to be raised to do it. And so you do what's called a scissor reel. And maybe a lot of people know about that, but not everyone does where, you know, you, you follow somebody or the subject you have, you try to come up with like a, a three minute chunk that you can use to go to investors of, you know, that it's, it's sort of like a trailer. Right. Yeah. And so that's sort of the first stab usually at trying to kind of figure out, Hey, this is what the movie is. This is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to feel like. And this is the, the things that it's going to cover. I would imagine most documentary editors would agree that like, if you looked at the sizzle reel and then the final project three out of five times, totally different movies, <laughs> you know, in terms of like what you thought you were going to get and then what you did get or what you were able to get, you know, just those types of things. And so documentaries are quite different from feature films in that way. And um, I think it surprises a lot of people that a reasonable time frame to edit a documentary is a year. I think feature films, like that's kind of unheard of, you know, there's a lot of feature films that particularly if they're visual effects heavy, just the process can take that long, you know, because you're feeding out and farming out all the shots to all these different people. But in terms of the actual time that you're sitting there editing, it's not nearly as long. So yeah, it, it, it's much, it's much, much more similar to writing, editing a documentary is than it is to editing a feature film. That actually, you know, that, that takes us actually back to how you decided to get into editing specifically. So I'm interested because I mean, editing actually, I feel like is one of the, the few film jobs that like a normal person actually knows, like they get it, you know, whether they've had to like make something in iMovie or they've had to like do a presentation, like they get what that looks like. Whereas if I told someone like, you know, uh, you could be a gaffer on a film, people have no idea what a gaffer would, would do. So, so tell me about well, like, I w- what I would say yeah, though, I think that's probably more of your generation. Like I remember when I was like maybe a freshman or a junior in, in undergrad, I downloaded Final Cut Pro 1.0, you know, like off a hacked website. And, uh, okay. you know, nobody had iPhones back then. It, you know, it, it was a little different then of kind of like, so I, I think, for instance, my parents still have I, I, I barely their understanding of what it is I do, you know? I guess that that's true, that, that, that we... Um, that younger people have access to like a lot of these, these, these editing platforms that like no one did. So I, I do have to, I take that for granted. So that's a fair point. Wait, sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack your question. Um, where, sorry, where were you going? You were saying, no, I was just saying like, what, what brought you to editing specifically? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's not a f- cool answer. I was like, literally, I just needed a job. Um, you know, <laughs> I, th- yeah. I think that's valid when I was at, when I was in film school, it was a little bizarre in the sense of, particularly since it's such a well-regarded film school, it still boggles my mind how I think almost every single one of us in film school had this sort of subconscious 
idea that when they got out, they were just going to like be offered a job to be a great director. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that they yeah. were, that you were creatively ready and intellectually ready and all that stuff that was like, you had done all the steps. And so it just kind of, you just thought, uh, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. But I knew that like, yeah, as soon as I got out of school, it was like, I have to have a paycheck of some sort. And it was just, I think the two things were one, the lifestyle suited me better. I'm much more like a night owl. Like I'm, I don't like getting up in the morning, but I'll happily work through the night on something. And film sets are very much like up at the crack of dawn, you know, get all your lighting and everything ready. And then, um, and so I, yeah, it was just as I was going to film school and you realized like the kind of different worlds that you can live in. I, I thought like, gosh, that's going to be hard for me if I, <laughs> if I have to transition to that lifestyle. Um, and then, but the, the more major reason was I just had the discovery that, you know, there's, there's a lot of different aspects to making a film that you can fall in love with. If you want to be a writer and a director, which is sort of like the, the golden ring for everyone, your main job is storytelling. That's like, you know, of all the different responsibilities and skills you can develop that help you in that process, your main job is a storyteller and seeing the big picture, being, being responsible for the big picture. And so editing is, I think, actually the only person that's really quite as involved in telling the big picture, figuring out the big picture of the story. It just felt like the next, the, the smartest choice to make in terms of like staying on a path towards uh, doing something bigger. That's so interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I have two thoughts about that. I mean, the first is that I think people underestimate how often like lifestyle decisions and uh, economic decisions go into sort of the artistic decisions that we make. Or I guess I, sh I should say like economic and lifestyle factors. A teacher of mine talks about this with pop music. He talked about like touring musicians versus studio musicians. And he said, well, one of the major things is like you're on tour if you're a touring musician. And for some people, like they don't want to be on tour. So they know they're like, okay, this life is not for me. I mean, as much as it feels like I might want to be the guitarist for Justin Timberlake, you know, Justin Timberlake has to show up in Brussels to do his concert and I don't want to be away from my family. That makes a legitimate impact in like the kind of field that you decide to, to pursue. And so that's so interesting hearing you. Just, just something as simple as, I'm not necessarily a morning person. I don't know if I want to have to wake up in the morning to do this and realizing that ed editors don't have to do that and that um, can make a, an impact. And that the getting a job is like I've now I've, having done a couple of these podcasts, I can say for a fact that that's like the immediate decision of a ton of people. They're like, I needed a job. I took the job that was there and it just turned out that that also happened to be something I liked doing. Mm -hmm. So you're certainly not unique in that regard. Um, and the second thing is, is I was just thinking about what an inflated sense of importance actors can feel in terms of storytelling. <laughs> like, that's what I thought of. Is you were talking about how editors really get a chance to look at the big picture of this at whatever the story is. And it just makes me think about how much, as actors, we think we're the center of it. But <laughs> I would agree with you that, like, so much is in the editing. And boy, do we know it, which is why so many actors, I think, once they have enough clout, you know, and they want to be producers and stuff, they want to find themselves in the edit bay so they can help people decide what goes in into the films. But that's such an interesting thing to hear that that like you were drawn to this idea of the of the bigger storytelling. 
So I had the the opportunity to see your film or the film that you edited, seeing All Red. First of all, it was just exciting to see a film that you had edited because um, <laughs> I hadn't seen any of your, your work. Thank you. Um, on top of that, it was really interesting because Gloria Allred, like, even though I did not know her story personally, as soon as I saw her on screen, I was like, oh, I know this person. Right. And so it was really unique sort of seeing a documentary film that was about like a essentially a political figure in a lot of ways, depending on you know who you talk to. So why don't you talk a little bit about sort of how you came to the project of, of uh, this particular film and of like talking about Gloria Allred? Hmm. Well, actually out of film school, I got kind of like my first job was working as an assistant editor at this small production company. And they have been the people that I've kind of done the most films with. And I you know, after one or two movies, I kind of went from being an assistant to being an editor. And, and so it's really two main people, Roberta and Sophie, that I've been working with now for like over a decade. And they're incredible. And so I had no part in like the choosing of this project. You know, I mean, they, Sophie, or they, they had a friend that, a, like a family friend that worked at her law firm. And that was sort of their connection to her. And they... I think have always loved her and always been curious about her as a person, particularly because she's fought for such a long time for LGBT rights. And so that was something that was important to them. And so she'd been sort of one of their personal champions, I think, um, for a while. They were wanting to do a movie with her for a very long time and were talking to her. And it took them a long time to sort of convince her to let them tell her story. Um, so I was sort of just along for the ride on that one. And I just, I got lucky, I would say, because, yeah, the moment that they started following her was right when the Cosby story started breaking. So yeah. timing-wise, it just felt like a an incredible moment to sort of like suddenly start capturing some footage about her and telling her story. Right, and she had defended so many of those, uh, so many of his accusers in, mm -hmm. in court. Exactly. Um, and it also happened right around the time, right, of the, of the election and and the women's march and so it, it kind of it was very timely yeah um, totally and you know it's it's weird seeing now like working on enough films that you realize like how much that plays into particularly with documentaries i think you know interesting the the popularity or success of said movie like you know you can have a great movie but if it's not timely it's just there's just so many docs being made right now. And so it's it's just easy for something to get buried. So I, I know that there's a lot of strategy even that can go into like, you know, waiting, you know, if you've got a movie that's even done, waiting until, you know, maybe something happens that can sort of increase the relevancy of your movie. So we just got super lucky, I would say, with the timing of that movie, that not only was it a, an interesting moment to, we had a, like an incredible case of and situation to be following but then the me too thing really blossomed at the moment that the movie was kind of coming out so yeah that that was really spectacular to kind of be a part of that and um there's there's a thing which is like what is the story i can tell but it, i think there's also like what is the story i can tell that i'll be proud of you know and and feel really confident that even if even when this movie comes out nobody gives a shit about it um i still know that it was it was worth watching, you know, and uh, that there was something really important. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit, a little bit about editing, and, and you served as, as the second unit director for this Holocaust documentary, Who Will Write Our History? And I haven't had the chance to see it, but my, my family did, and, and they were glad that they did see it. 
really quickly, I think I just have to get into the minutia of like what exactly a second unit director um, does. I don't know if many people will, will know about this, that like you have a director and they're often on one location shooting with the principal actors, but sometimes on the same day you need to get something else done somewhere else or you need to shoot either B-roll footage or, or sometimes actually, you know, other actors will just be at a different location and there'll often be a director who directs all the action that's happening there so that way you're not wasting time having to move from one place to the other to handle this whole situation have i described that that job well enough yeah 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 totally <laughs> uh, that one um in uh, you know i was telling you that i've worked with these filmmakers for a couple years now so that partly that was them trusting me uh, which was nice of them to um saying hey there's there's shots that need to be done on this movie and um we need kind of another person to be watching over that situation so that particular one the shots that I was getting were maybe a little atypical of what a second unit director because it was much, they were very visual effect shots. There was something that we did that in Holocaust scholar world was quite controversial, which was that we decided to green screen our actors and put them into footage that had been taken during that time. I see. And, um, and this was, you know, the director of that film, Roberta, she'd, you know, assembled sort of this team of all these really some like the best respected scholars, you know, um, and had this conversation and, and a lot of them were kind of like, you just can't do this. You can't do this. Like that's, you have to have authenticity as like a, a key component of how to explain things. The thing that made it really interesting. And one of the rebuttals that we were sort of trying to propose was that so much of the footage that people have of the Holocaust was actually shot by the Nazis for their own propaganda purposes. And so it could be sort of staged and it was kind of... Um, I didn't know this. That's it, it was, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy bizarre. But they had basically captured, you know, these Jews in a ghetto in Poland and they and it was in a, you know, in a place that they had, their army had occupied. And so they would essentially force Jews to kind of like, um, they would do things that they were using to try to build films that they would show how dirty and disgusting the Jews were. Wow. And so it, it's, it's kind of terrible footage. So you, but you have footage of like this, you know, this ghetto that they'd been stuck inside that had terrible living conditions. And, you know, then they were, the Jew, and then the Nazis were trying to illustrate that. And so there was kind of this, the, the footage itself was already, not totally real you know what i mean it right, in, right right um, right right it, it was it, it had its own purpose and so it felt like what we were trying to do was actually repurpose it for our own things but to sort of fight back and that's thematically very linked to what the film is in general you know it's it's a story of people that were trying to write their own narrative and record what was happening to them to counter the narratives that the nazis were were putting out there and saying what's going on with the Jews. So I don't know. I mean, anyone that watches the movie, they can make their own judgment about whether or not what we did was ethical or right. But creatively, I think it was definitely the right decision. Yeah. My, my role then, so on that was to do the green screenshots and um, figure out how to place our actors inside of footage that we had already found. And um, it, it was a really fascinating thing because we had to go through this visual effects company that we found in London. And it's kind of a neat getting in the, You said you like getting in the details. This was kind of cool because you would have to, you'd find a piece of footage and you would say like, okay, we're going to have this person walk up the stairs with 
you know, this footage of these people from 19, you know, 41 walking up the stairs and you would have to reverse engineer the lens and the dimensions of the shot that they were shooting so that on a green screen stage, you can, you can match it. And that was its own kind of crazy process. I think it's sort of my last question, if you don't mind, I know I'm sorry, we've gone way over now. I have kind of a, a an almost philosophical question, but actually just like a legitimate question coming from like me going to school. So I, I took a, oh, I'm forgetting now what the actual like class code is, but I took a cinema 466. It, it was just basically a class where Leonard Maltin, the like the film critic, uh, runs this class at USC and it's, uh, it's called Theatrical Film Symposium. It's one of the most famous courses at USC. And he, basically every week you watch a movie, he'll interview someone who was a part of the film, whether it be a writer or a director sometimes, or sometimes it'll be like the sound editor, you know, a job that maybe fewer people know about and they get to understand the film from a sound editor's perspective. So we went to watch this one uh, documentary film and there was this term that was brought up, uh, which is like cinema verite this idea of like just being an observer and shooting things as they are. But at the same time as you were, you were bringing up with this Holocaust footage, I don't know if that's a, like, if that even is real because no matter who, you know, like the Nazis clearly had a perspective shooting this and you may think that something is just cinema verite. Oh, that's just how it is. But in reality it isn't so. And you almost have to, like you said, insert your voice into it in order to try to balance the story so that you don't hear it from one side or the other. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's a really long-winded way of asking, as a documentary filmmaker, as like an editor, what do you feel like is your role in terms of inserting a voice into the material or trying to stay as neutral and observing things from this bird's eye view as you were talking about? Hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I mean, when I was in film school, the documentary genre was m much less vibrant and than it is now. I mean, I don't know if I saw some statistics that showed how it's just exploded how many documentaries have been made recently. Um, and so this conversation that you're having really dates back, you know, quite a few years. And in film school, it was a, it was a really healthy debate about, you know, like um, how do you, the group of people making documentaries 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, tended to be sort of an eclectic group. They were an idealistic group, generally, generally speaking. And, and there were these factions and there were people that were really trying to say, hey, can we use filmmaking to not be manipulative and not, you know, and, and try to use it to, to create something that was like as true as possible. And while there's probably way more people that have stronger, better articulated opinions and thoughts on that than I do, editing itself, there are choices that are, that are being made, whether it's like, where the person is standing from the camera to when you make the edit and you jump to something else that like, even if they seemed invisible to the audience, it was still very much like there is a perspective there. And so a lot of, you know, film theory has kind of moved to saying that we're in this like, you know, and not just film theory, but everyone says we're in a post-truth era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, and yeah, and so how that plays out in any given documentary is interesting in, in the sense that like, I don't, I don't say that I, I would never purport to like having 
an idea that resolves that or a way that you can say, hey, you're definite, like there's a way to be as close to the truth as possible because there's arguments that can be waged on either side of that debate. I feel like the thing that I try to focus on and because it brings me value in the process and it brings me is that I think that a lot of people now what's happened is that you have audience members that are that are becoming a lot more savvy at understanding when they're being manipulated and I think that's a good thing I think everyone that's a that's something that I would hope just is part of everyone's intellectual maturity process is kind of realizing that like hey the world is out to Everyone's got their own version of reality and events, and they're trying to sell you on it. And even if they're not trying to sell you on it, that's still just kind of how they see things. And so um, I still have a pretty strong faith in filmmaking and in the arts in general that um, even if a single film can't show you truth, that, you know, just the process of seeing what's out there and seeing somebody presents you an experience or an object, an opinion that's different from your own. Um, there's real value in that. And so we may never as humans be able to, if, if we're talking on a philosophical level, we may never, you know, we may never as humans be able to kind of like really understand all of the perspectives and uh, synthesize all the different versions of truth that exist out there. You can be quite a bit better if you find one that's different from your own. And uh, as an editor, I would say that's something that I, I'm probably consciously mindful of every day and you know sometimes it's manifests itself in really minute ways of kind of just saying like hey is there a way to suggest what you think this is about but not force it you know yeah and and I think in general that's just a good approach just having conversations with people you know not to say hey this is what's really going on but like hey this is what I think is going on you know that's that subtle difference whether you perceive it from the filmmaker's perspective or whatever, I think makes goes a long way in sort of uh, helping people uh, let down their guard a little bit, maybe, and you know, listen. Well, Chris, I wanted to thank you so much for being here and for talking with me. This is such a great conversation. Tell me a little bit about where people can can find you. I know you have a website. I do. I don't think anybody knows about it on the entire planet. Okay. I, I created it just to like if somebody's asking like for a resume, it's kind of like oh, it's easier to send them there. So it's chriscollister.com. I'm, I'm going to put a link in, in, in the show notes, I guess on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to the films that, that Chris has edited and done work on. And uh, I'll also link to your website so people can, can find the work that, that you've done. But yeah, thanks so much for being with me and, and for talking. Thank you, and thank you for doing this. This is awesome. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Art in All Its Forms Pod. That's Art in All Its Forms Pod. Uh, if you want to send us an email with uh, comments, questions, concerns, musings, you can email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com that's aiaifpod at gmail.com thanks <laughs>